You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. The tech sector being not just one of the greatest creators of wealth, but one of the greatest creators of wealth for the 1%. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. There's already positive change that's going on uh, within organized sports. We're reducing this chance of second injuries. There is no 100% secure website. There is no 100% security for your system. This is KCBS In-Depth. As massive wildland fires continue to blaze in Australia, for many here in California, this crisis is all too familiar. Just as we saw during California's own wildfire disasters, in Australia, dry, hot conditions and strong winds are all coming together to produce fast-moving fires and devastation. I'm Keith Menconi. This is KCBS In-Depth, and today in the program, with so much in common, we're going to ask the question, what lessons might Australia's unfolding tragedy have for California? In the first half, we'll be hearing how firefighters on both sides of the Pacific are working together to fight these blazes and what they're learning in the process. We within the U.S. may think, you know, we've got the corner on fighting wildland fires. You know, there's other people in the world that experience what we do. Then in the second half, fire scientists weigh in on what role climate change is playing in creating the conditions for fire in Australia and around the globe. Climate change uh, tends to be an exacerbator. All that more coming up next. First up on the program today, lessons for fighting fire. Well, firefighters from California have already been dispatched to Australia, building on a firefighting partnership that stretches back more than a decade. For some more perspective, we're going to welcome onto the program a firefighting expert who has seen it from both sides. That would be Kim Zagaris. He is the Wildfire Policy and Technology Advisor for the Western Fire Chiefs Association. He's also a retired state fire and rescue chief. Kim Zagaris, welcome to KCBS In-Depth. Well, good day. So to start things off, if you could tell us a little bit more about that partnership in firefighting between Australia and California. You yourself have taken part in that partnership to some degree. You've traveled to Australia to give a number of talks in recent years. So you've seen the conditions on the ground over there. Uh, tell us more about that partnership. It, it goes back a number of years. Is that correct? We've had uh, firefighters uh, from the U.S. and California deployed uh, over there in Australia, going back to the 2008-2009 uh, series of fires um, um, that what you know they call Black Saturday, um, that we've uh, been sharing and learning from uh, over that time. Not only the fires, but including uh, drought and uh, uh, flooding and uh, swift water rescue. Uh, just to mention a couple other subjects and uh, and uh, working on development of applications and technologies. Uh, since we have similar uh, climates and similar emergencies. And we hear a lot about the similarities between the fire conditions in California and Australia. Lay out those similarities for us, if you could. Well, we both uh, have a very hot, very dry, arid uh, uh, climate uh, that we're both experiencing. Um, We uh, both experience uh, long droughts, although... Um, why California just came out of a five-year drought. I mean, Australia has been in, you know, has had a nine-year drought they came out of uh, a couple of years ago. So there's similarities in, in that side of the, in that side, as well as um, from uh, um, other emergencies that uh, we deal with back and forth. 
And is the vegetation in both regions, is that similar as well? Yes, there is a similarity in the vegetation as well. Uh, that, um, um, you know, from the brush standpoint, grass, uh, we have some eucalyptus, not as much as they do, but they also have uh, uh, um, conifers and, and pine forests, just like we do here in California. And so we're hearing about a pretty massive response in Australia. Tell us a little bit about what you know about how Australian authorities are responding to these fires and how that stacks up to what we might see here in California. I think I saw the height. They had over 2,700 uh, firefighters that were actively engaged in, I don't know, about 169 uh, wildfires is the last one I saw. Compare that to, uh, you know, the um, the, uh, paradise, the in paradise, the campfire, in uh, 2018, we had well over 5,500 firefighters just on the ground for that one incident. Um, you know, it's not uncommon that uh, in California fire sieges that we've had, that we've had, you know, 20, 21,000 firefighters on the ground, you know, staffing engines and hand crews and water tenders and dozers and incident management people and support, helicopters, aviation and air tankers and the air tanker bases. Um, you know, it's truly phenomenal. And uh, you look at, you know, they're dealing with, you know, 25 million acres uh, that they've burnt since uh, November. And uh, they're doing it with a lot less uh, uh, firefighting forces. And, uh, you know, uh, politics there, just like here, uh, you know, the prime minister is uh, being uh, challenged for slow response on the federal side. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's an interesting times. So given all of this shared experience and all this collaboration on both sides, what do we stand to learn from one another? What what are the areas where firefighters really feel like there's there's more technology to be developed or more to be understood about how these fires operate? Well, I would say that while we have more resources and personnel, um, I think we're both fighting Mother Nature. Uh, you know, we're, we're both fighting the fuel uh, uh, buildup that we have uh, on the ground and whether it's the annual grasses or whether it's the brush or trees, you know, we're, we've got a uh, bug kill problem uh, better than 130 million acres, uh, 130 million trees in the uh, Sierras that are uh, dead or dying. That will be a problem for you know, probably if not a decade, another at least two decades worth of deal with. They're dealing with, they're dealing with the same issues. I, I think we both have very volatile uh, fuels uh, due to um, um, some of the oils that are in those uh, fuels. They're very explosive. Um, we're trying to find a better way uh, to really uh, you know figure out what the conditions are going to do, um, so we can do a better job of uh, of attacking them or getting out of, getting people out of harm's way. At the same end, uh, uh, we continue to throw more resources at it. Um, it only goes so far. I think both both countries believe that uh, the more the citizens can do to prepare themselves and prepare their structures, the better off we're all going to be uh, from that standpoint. And I think uh, at the end of the day, the safety of our of our citizens and the safety of our firefighters are paramount in how we deliver that service. And... Uh, I know um, within California and the Western United States, and even at the national level, we believe that the wildland problem is is a is a significant issue, and that uh, 
as as our wildland problem and our technology continues to boom in, in that side of the house, we need to find a way to be more efficient, more effective all the way around in uh, predicting and attacking the fires and being better prepared. Hmm. And uh, to round things out, uh, I'm wondering if you could share your thoughts on the broader significance of this partnership between California and Australia, because, you know, no matter how many folks that we send over there, it's given the scales of these fires, it's not necessarily going to tip the balance of the firefighting effort. But based on what you're saying so far, it, it sounds like there is a little bit more to be shared and more to be learned just in having this mutual interaction in the first place. Well, at the end of the day, you know, um, it's neighbor helping neighbor. You know, it may have been your neighbor next door to you, but in the world uh, uh, that we're in today, um, we need to work together both uh, uh, with the knowledge and the capability we have to, sh- to save lives and property, uh, learn to what our, what we need to do to live and adjust with our environment, and make things safer and better down the road. Um, there's a lot to be learned from our command and control and, and, and why you know, we within the U.S. may think, you know, we've got the corner on fighting wildland fires. You know, there's other people in the world that experience what we do. Um, and again, I think we can share and learn from one another. Uh, those lessons learned become better. And uh, we can bring you know, I always, I always like to use the term that uh, it's always better to give mutual aid than it is to receive it. It's usually a bad day. Um, and California, I'll tell you, has really wrote the book on mutual aid and how we do business. But I really think that uh, we have a global economy, we have a global response, and the more we do together and we could find ways to, uh, as one of my friends, uh, retired uh, uh, Fire Chief John Hawkins from the California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection would say, let's minimize our uh, our differences and, maximizes, and maximize our similarities. And I think that's where we're, where we're at with these lessons learned. All right, so a lot of work clearly still left to be done, and uh, we will be monitoring it as this all unfolds. We've been speaking right here to Kim Zagaris. He, once again, is the Wildfire Policy and Technology Advisor for the Western Fire Chiefs Association. Kim Zagaris, thanks so much. You betcha. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth, a weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. Today, we consider what lessons Australia's raging wildfires may have for California. We just heard how firefighters on both sides of the Pacific are working together to meet the growing wildfire challenge. Up next on the program, a scientist's eye view on this disaster. Two scientists, actually. We're going to welcome them on to help us understand why these fires have gotten so bad and what this should tell us about how to prevent future disasters. First up, we have fire scientist Crystal Colden. She's a professor with the University of Idaho's Forest, Rangeland, and Fire Science Department. Professor Colden, thanks for being on KCBS In-Depth. Thanks for having me. Next up, we're going to welcome back a return guest, Dr. Scott Stevens. He's a professor of fire science and the chair of the Division of Ecosystem Science at UC Berkeley. Uh, Welcome, Dr. Scott Stevens, as well. Happy to be here. So you both took recent trips to Australia. And so where I want to start this conversation before we really get into things is if you could both briefly uh, give me a little bit on what you took away from that experience and whether or not you know, being there before the fire started, you had any sense that something of this magnitude was coming Australia's way. Uh, Dr. Scott Stevens, let's talk with you. Well, I think that there are some similarities. You know, I was there a few years ago after the 2009 Black Saturday fires, and they burn in a lot of 
similar areas of both Victoria and New South Wales. They have fire regimes over there or different forest types that are adapted both to high-intensity fire, maybe every 100 years, every 150 years. A lot of that's burning today in Victoria and New South Wales. And some other places where the fires actually are adapted to much more frequent fire, low-severity fire. I think Australia has a lot of parallels to a lot of places in California, the way we build, the way we have um, topography, primal vegetation. But one thing I think is very different, I think as a society and a social group, Australia gets a lot better prepared for fire. I think they've done a better job over the decades, and not to say they've got it figured out, but I still think that what they do with their social systems and communities gets them better prepared for fire than in most places in California. And uh, Professor Colton, you you as well. So you visited Tasmania and you've been uh, watching Australia for some time now. Did you have any sense that something like this was coming? I think that most fire scientists uh, who are watching the patterns and the trends that are emerging globally are seeing that there is greater potential, not just in Australia, but in the U.S. and in a lot of other places in the world, for these more extreme and disastrous events. Uh, and as Dr. Stevens noted, that this is a function of uh, the conditions under which people are building, uh, the fact that a lot of these regions have always had fire. They're fire-adapted ecosystems. Uh, But what we're seeing is this trend towards uh, more severe fire in some places, more destructive fire in some places, because there are now people in these areas that are adapted for fire and they're building homes that are highly combustible. Uh, So it's something that we've seen as a potential. Uh, Actually seeing it happen and seeing what the level of destruction looks like, uh, I I think for most of us, uh, thinking it can happen is one thing, but then actually watching it is it unfold is an entirely different thing and, and one that is pretty tragic for us. Yeah, pretty tragic for the entire world to witness, really. And when we look at the conditions that are making this these fires possible, we're talking about things like high temperatures, low humidity, strong winds, dry fuels, the same conditions that are driving fires here in California, and the same conditions that are closely associated with climate change. So let's jump into that conversation now. Uh, Crystal Colden, what role do you see climate change playing in all this? So climate change uh, tends to be an exacerbator. It is uh, producing these conditions that are, yes, they're hotter, they're drier. Uh, One thing that is really clear in the Australia fires, but that we've also seen in the U.S., is that climate change is altering the timing of when we get conditions that are conducive to large fires growing. Uh, And in Australia, you know, for for U.S. listeners, it's, it's hard to wrap our minds around uh, the difference in seasons. But of course, in Australia, it's summer right now. And the peak fire season for the southeastern portion of Australia is usually not until later in January, early February. Most of their large destructive fires uh, have actually not happened until the last week of January and the first week of February, historically. Uh, Whereas these current year fires, those started really early. They started in November and they burned strong all through December, still going in January. January. So this is much earlier than uh, normal. And that is really consistent with what we see uh, in California with longer fire seasons. California is uh, generally considered to have a year-round fire season now with no real break. Uh, And it is consistent with climate change where we have this shift in the timing of extreme conditions. Uh, We have record heat, which really drives these big fire movement days. Uh, And we have 
droughts ahead of these summer seasons that really exacerbate the uh, effect on vegetation and make it much more available to burn. So all of these things uh, together are consistent with what a lot of the climate change projections said would happen. Uh, Australia's own projections said this would happen. Uh, And so it's consistent with a global climate change signal. Hmm. So we're seeing all of these varied changes that are, are, are showing up in similar ways around the globe. I remember, though, uh, when we spoke with you recently, Professor Stevens, you were pointing to other factors in California that were beyond climate that were also contributing to a lot of the destruction that we're seeing in terms of where we're building, how we're managing our vegetation. A lot of things coming together to make the fires not only more common, but also a lot more destructive and deadly. Do you see the same sorts of dynamics playing out in Australia? Yes, I do. You know, because there's no doubt that climate change is impacting fire globally, and it's real, and it's going to continue to do so. Sometimes when I hear the discussion about this topic, it feels like somehow that it is the factor. You know, I think Crystal said it's really a factor that adds on to maybe existing factors, and existing factors are like a multiplier. Yeah, a multiplier, exactly. So you're thinking about, you know, how do we build? How do we build communities? Where do we live in communities? How much wild and urban interface do we have, and how much more do we create? Um, Ignitions. Most ignitions, unfortunately, are from people. I saw in some reports that 24 people in Australia have been actually detained because of possible arson ignition, which is a very small percentage of most ignitions. Most ignitions are activists by people. And then the other piece becomes just the ecosystems themselves. How have they been changed maybe in the last 100, 200 years? Of course, in Australia, you have a long aboriginal burning program in many areas of the country that had impact through maybe 40,000 years, 30,000 years. California, we have native tribes and indigenous burning and also lightning fire. So some of the ecosystems, not all of them, but some of the ecosystems have been profoundly changed in the way we've actually managed them for the last 100 years, predisposing them to maybe more high severity, high intensity fire effects. So the culmination of all that is there's there's several factors that are really kind of being part of what we're seeing both in Australia and California when we see fire. All right. Let's tease apart all those factors in just a second. Uh, But before we get to that, I want to remind our listeners that you're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Today, we're taking a look at Australia's devastating wildfires and considering what they may have to teach us about our own fire future. Joining us, we have fire scientist Crystal Colden, a professor with the University of Idaho's Forest, Rangeland, and Fire Science Department. Also on the program, Dr. Scott Stevens, a professor of fire science and the chair of the Division of Ecosystem Science at UC Berkeley. So getting to the question of where, where do we go from here? I mean, I think that we are all in this strange world where we're learning day to day what the new normal is, what that means, and how we can best react to it. And so having yet another example of fire devastation in a different part of the world, I imagine there are a lot of lessons to be learned to help us grapple with that new reality. Uh, Professor Colden, what are you watching for as this fire tragedy unfolds? So there's quite a few things that I'm watching for as a scientist, but one of the key things is we're watching to see what the response is uh, in terms of policy and in terms of some of the regulatory changes and management type changes uh, that can be made. Um, And we're watching this in Australia, we're watching this in California, uh, because one of the things that we can control is where and how 
we put infrastructure, where we put our houses and how we build them. Uh, and while there are not a lot of things that we can control, especially as individuals in terms of global climate, uh, what we can look at is how do we build our communities and how do we manage fire and forests and, and vegetation more broadly across these landscapes. Um, one of the things that has been discussed with Australia is that uh, they had these large fires in 2009, uh, as Dr. Stevens noted, the Black Saturday fires, uh, and those fires killed over 170 people. And it was an incredibly tragic event and sort of a, a surprise for many in Australia uh, because it tested a lot of the cultural norms of how they responded to fire. Uh, and one of the things that came out of that event was a series of uh, inquiries, uh, government inquiries into what they can do differently, what went wrong. There were a lot of policy recommendations. Um, and 10 years later, some of those policies have been put into place, but other recommendations were not addressed. Um, and so now that is sort of coming back to the surface and Australians are asking, okay, we, we didn't really pay attention. We didn't follow up on this last time. What do we need to do moving into the future uh, because th this is likely to happen again. Um, and this is the same type of thing we're looking at in California and across the U.S., uh, which is understanding and learning from recent disasters where we've had a high number of fatalities or thousands of homes consumed and asking, all right, what do we need to do differently? What do we need to do differently from a regulatory standpoint? What do we need to do differently just in our day-to-day -day, uh, cultural approach to how we live on these fire-adapted landscapes. Well, Professor Stevens with UC Berkeley, uh, what do we need to do differently? I mean, it seems in some ways the answers are fairly simple. Uh, build in places that don't burn and uh, do a better job of clearing out vegetation. But I, I suppose uh, the real answer may be more complicated than that. Well, I think you're right. I mean, I agree with um, what Crystal said. You know, the way we position communities, the way we basically get people prepared you know, the campfire was just a tragedy here in California, and we've had other fires that have also hit communities. And many times I think people realize all of a sudden they get a knock on the door of the sheriff. Maybe they get a neighbor comes over and says, oh, my goodness, we get a terrible fire. In the middle of the night, no preparation. Fire is moving so quickly it's on top of them maybe within three, four, five hours. So then the question becomes, well, maybe you've got a neighbor next door that actually is 88 years old, doesn't have a car, or maybe someone down the street just had a baby and they're um, maybe don't have as much transportation access as well. So maybe a community comes together and starts to talk about some of this before the fire, maybe in the spring. Maybe there's a place you'll designate that maybe for the worst case scenario, a fire is running over your town. It's the last place to go and you think you have some ability to survive. Maybe it's a large um, ball field, open area, with lower fuels. So you have that conversation, and then you can create maybe a plan in your community. Maybe some group could help facilitate that. Someone can come in and extend information to that group and get people prepared a little bit better for when the fire happens. And then the other piece is in some vegetation types, vegetation management is really important as well. You know, we have a lot of places in California that used to burn every 5, 7, 10, 15 years, both from indigenous burning, also lightning fire. Um, mixed conifer forest, ponderosa pine, oak woodlands, things of that nature. And these places, many of them haven't had any type of disturbance or burning in maybe 100 years. So fuels have changed, fuel increased, also continuity of fuel to make fire burn more intensely, more quickly. So those places, we can get 
and do some work today to reduce fuel loads, maybe prescribed fire, restoration thinning, maybe grazing combinations of those treatments. And we could get those systems in a place that when they do burn, and they are going to burn again, we're not going to have flame lengths as large or maybe ember casts as long miles downwind into communities so we can reduce the vulnerability. So there's a lot of work we can also do in vegetation types in this state to also reduce the potential for catastrophic fire. We are, though, taking many of those steps. I actually did a ride-along with a a Marin County firefighter as he was doing inspection work of a lot of the trimming projects that they have going on up there, and there's trimming projects going on along many freeways. So there there is a lot of trimming work taking place right now. I guess, Dr. Stevens, just to follow on on what you were saying a moment ago, what, what would you say needs to be augmented about what we're doing currently? Is it just a matter of scale we need to be doing more, or is there a way to do this smarter? Well, I think there's... A way to do it smarter, and the scale question is still paramount. If you start to look today in many places in California, and you're right, there are communities getting better prepared. The state of California is taking a, um, a role to try to engage communities more. There's grants to come out right now, $200 million available on an annual basis for fuels reduction projects that can be agreed upon by communities, individuals. And then the question then becomes is, you know, how are we doing in terms of how much are we really making a difference? And we could point to some communities in this state, and they're really making a difference. But when we start to look at maybe the wildlands and the areas maybe a mile, five miles away from a lot of communities, there really hasn't been enough work done there at all. My back-of-the-envelope calculation says we need to do 10 times more. So 10 times is a big number, you know, and I know California now, the governor's office says it wants to try to do 500,000 acres of burning or fuels treatments per year in California wildlands, in state private ground. The Forest Service, U.S. Forest Service, has said it like to maybe potentially do about 500,000 acres as well per year. We start to do those numbers, maybe a million acres a year, we can start to make a difference. And even that, even though it sounds huge, is still not enough. Because we have such a large state, you know, we're a state that's huge and many, many tens of millions of acres of land that are really in bad condition in terms of fire hazard and also drought potential, infection disease impacts. It's not just fire. So, yes, we can do better, but I think in many cases it's a, it's a scale question and the ability to come to grips with some of the other issues, wildlife management, carbon sequestration, there's many other things that have to be considered. But I would say it's primarily a scale issue and trying to work in the appropriate systems doesn't mean we go into chaparral. Chaparral in California, which is a different vegetation type, burns high severity. You don't underburn chaparral. You can't really reduce its severity very well. So it really depends on the vegetation type. But I would still say um, the scale of what we're trying to do here still needs to increase by um, quite a bit. Hmm. And uh, turning things back to you, Professor Colden, uh, one thing that I know that you have written about uh, quite a bit, and uh, we've actually heard Professor Stevens allude to this as well, is the fire practices of indigenous people and the fire management tools that indigenous people in Australia have used uh, long before European settlers came to the continent. Uh, and uh, perhaps there are some lessons there as well for, uh, for, for us today. I think so. And, and I think this also, uh, you know, delves into your, your last question to Dr. Stevens a little bit, which is, you know, what, what do we need to change? What do we just need to scale up? Um, really what a key difference is when we look at uh, indigenous cultural use of fire uh, is that, you know, the most of the indigenous people who 
uh, have lived in these fire-adapted systems don't see fire as a foe. They see it as an ally. They see it as a key component of their cultural system. Uh, and that viewpoint is vastly different than what most of us that live in Western societies have today of fire. Uh, and, and this is one of the key things that it will help facilitate that scaling up uh, that Dr. Stevens talks about is is really changing the way we see fire as not something to be to be dreaded and simply hope that it doesn't happen to us, um, which is really one of the major problems in a lot of our our fire prone communities is you know, people just, they don't think it will happen there, or they know it could happen, but they really don't want it to. So they don't prepare for it. Um, And one of the things that we can learn right away from indigenous cultures is fire is going to happen. And when we say that we need to live with fire, we need to understand that it is going to happen. It is going to happen at any time. And actually, it's good for us if it does happen. And if we utilize fire to help create uh, a situation where when it does, when wildfires do start, uh, they burn less intensely. Uh, they don't give off all those embers that then fly into houses and burn down homes. Uh, you know, that, that we can actually utilize fire as an ally to develop a landscape that we can live in and that we can, you know, find places that are safe during a wildfire. Um, one of the things that has become very clear over the last several years is that Indigenous people have an enormous amount of cultural knowledge. Um, a lot of Indigenous groups have a, a person or several persons in the in the group that are known as fire keepers, uh, and they are basically the keepers of knowledge about how to burn and when to burn to achieve specific cultural cultural objectives. Uh, and we have a lot to learn from them and, and really uh, allow Indigenous people in California, in Australia, and across other parts of the globe uh, to you know, return to that leadership role and to uh, teach the rest of us what, you know, what they know and how they can use fire uh, to achieve these type of fire adapted landscapes. Um, and and it's, it's not just more burning, uh, it's burning at specific times, it's burning for specific purposes, um, and it's really being in tune with the land. Um, and that's not something that tends to jive so much with our Western science. So uh, for us, it's a learning process too, to figure out how to quantify and characterize that. Mm, yeah. When, when when certain cultural knowledge is, is kept out there, I imagine it, it's difficult to bring it from one system into another. So definitely something worth a, a lot of attention there. Before we close things out, I'm curious for both of your views. Now, perhaps one of the, the biggest takeaways that California might have uh, from this recent experience is, you know, for the last several years, the rest of America was looking to California as uh, this may be what the fire future is for us. Now, we're looking over to Australia and thinking, wow, in a lot of ways, this is even worse than what we've experienced. It's difficult to compare because obviously it's a much larger scale. Um, but uh, for, for, for many people, you know, it, it feels like a vision of where climate change may be leading us. Uh, in the last couple of minutes that we have, uh, Dr. Stevens, if you could reflect on what this is telling us about where the world is going in terms of our fire future. Well, I, I think it really does show that, you know, fire is still going to be continuing to play as a, a critical piece of many landscapes. And climate change is going to change that interaction. But one thing I think is important to say is there's hope. I think a lot of times when you talk to people about this, it feels like maybe there's almost no hope. There's no ability to make things some 
what better? You know, that somehow fire is just going to keep coming. We're going to lose towns, lose lives, lose structures. And I think in some ways it gets to a point where you just wonder, wow, what are you going to do? Throw up your hands and just allow it to happen or, you know, just worry all the time. There's a lot of psychological worry from a lot of people that have experienced fire in this state today. They see another one. They see one reported. They can really go into panic attack. So I just say, you know, there really is hope. There really is things we can do today to make a difference. We can do better in the way we build communities. We can do better with maybe outreach information to both city councils, boards of supervisors, fire state councils, and local communities. We can also do better with our vegetation management and the appropriate types, doing the prescribed burning, and as Crystal just says, maybe energize if indigenous cultures would like to participate, their knowledge and their ideas. I see indigenous cultures as kind of a, a nugget of a, really a place that you can get some innovations and new ideas. We need new ideas. We can't keep doing the same thing we've been doing the last 50 years and expect anything to change, right? So indigenous cultures, trying to do more with vegetation management, the way we build and preparing ourselves for the availability of fire. So there's great hope. So I think that that's one thing I would say, that there are things we can do today to make a difference. Mm. Uh, so a hopeful message there to uh, round out on. Uh, Professor Colden, uh, what, what do you see in the years ahead? I mean, it's a, a, a hopeful messages are important, but it is a, a harrowing time for many people. It is. Um, and, you know, the, the challenge is that uh, all of our projections of future climate globally and across the U.S. Uh, tell us that the conditions for catastrophic fire are going to continue to increase, uh, multiply the uh, the number of years in which we can have large extensive wildfires across large areas, places that you know, don't necessarily burn a heck of a lot right now. Um, and California tends to be the, the canary in the coal mine for fire for the rest of the U.S., but there are a lot of places in the U.S. that have not necessarily seen a lot of fire in recent decades, but historically were some of the uh, most devastating fires in, in U.S. history. Uh, places like Maine and Minnesota and Wisconsin, um, you know, places where the North Woods would, would burn uh, under these sort of really extreme conditions historically. Um, But the thing is that we also have examples in the U.S. of places where uh, we have learned to live with fire. Um, And and that is what gives me hope, is that we have places like the southeastern U.S., uh, where there is an enormous amount of fire in the southeastern U.S. And you don't often hear about the southeastern U.S. and fire because they don't tend to have a lot of destructive wildfire. What they have is four to five million acres a year of intentional prescribed fire. Uh, And that is a practice which has been slowly and carefully put into place over decades. Uh, And it has resulted today in a very different landscape than was there 100, 150 years ago, a very different role of fire in the forests uh, than potentially was there, you know, 100 years ago. Uh, But that is one that is sustaining southeastern ecosystems and is sustaining the ability of people to live in those communities. Uh, Because there there is a lot of uh, lightning conditions in the southeastern U.S. They get an enormous amount of lightning and it does get dry enough for a lot of those, uh, a lot of those ignitions to build into bigger fires. Uh, But the amount of hands-on, local-scale involvement with implementing prescribed fire uh, has really resulted in a different outcome to where we don't have big destructive fires in the southeastern U.S. the way we do out west. And, And that's the sort of thing that 
I look at and see as a potential future outcome uh, for the Western U.S. Uh, and for other places globally. If, if we can learn from what the Southeast has done uh, and learn how to manage this landscape in a way where, yes, the conditions are going to be more conducive to catastrophic fire, but we can head that off through really proactive management. Mm. All right. So a lot of work to be done, as uh, we both heard from you, and um, a lot more still to unfold in Australia. So our thoughts and prayers with everyone in Australia in this difficult time. Uh, we're going to sign off for, for now, though. I want to thank our guests. That was, once again, fire scientist Crystal Colden, a professor with the University of Idaho uh, Forest, Rangeland, and Fire Science Department. Professor Colden, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. also want to thank Scott Stevens, a professor of fire science and the chair of the Division of Ecosystem Science at UC Berkeley. Scott Stevens, thank you as well. Happy to be here. And remember, you can find past editions of KCBS In-Depth online at kcbsradio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Benconi. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS.